Welcome to My Dog Ate My Book Report, a podcast where two weirdo 30-somethings take turns introducing each other to a formative book from childhood the other has never read. I'm Brandon, he, him, and, uh, Ren, I've decided to run away from home, and I've chosen you to accompany me. You only want me to come with you because I have 23 whole dollars. That's correct. I've got, like, five bucks. <laughs> So, from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Bezley Frankweiler, which I'll probably just call, like, mixed-up files or something for short, uh, it's a 1967 novel written and illustrated by E.L. Konigsberg. Uh, it was one of her first. It's the story of Claudia and Jamie Kincaid, who run away from home to live in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Uh, while there, they discover Angel, a statuette of unconfirmed provenance and determine that they will solve the mystery themselves. I don't think there are any content warnings for the book, except for maybe, I don't know, learning that Michelangelo is not just a Ninja Turtle. <laughs> I I thought about it. I, I feel like if people are troubled with themes of homelessness, it could be seen as sort of making light of that a little bit, but mm. that's as far as I got in terms of thinking about what could be problematic about this book i don't know entitled white connecticut kids content warning (laughs) touching a bunch of stuff that you're not supposed to touch at a museum (laughs) i even when i was younger i did have a certain horror at what they were doing Um, now uh have you have you been to the metropolitan museum of art i actually have not uh sadly uh I've I've spent very little time ever in New York City at all, uh, and and what little time I did have, uh, I did not spend at the Met. I I thought about that while I was reading because I know that you know I'm on the East Coast, and not that far, so I've been there, and you, you know, were raised in the East Coast, but you have since moved far away from there. So yeah. I was sitting there thinking, oh. There's a good chance Brandon has not actually been to this museum. You know, growing up in in Virginia and and specifically in the, like the southerner part of Virginia, um, New York was always just kind of far away. And in general, like my parents never really liked big cities or whatever. So like they just tend tend to be vacation choices for my family. And if uh, we ever went to museums, and that was something that my grandmother actually did a lot, she was very invested in like exposing my brother and I to museums and other other you know sort of educational uh, vacations and stuff. The Smithsonian in D.C. was much closer uh, and, and and much easier to have like a lot of varied museums in easy walking distance of each other and everything. Oh, now I'm envious because I've never been there. Oh. Yeah, I've been to the I've, Smithsonian a lot. <laughs> I, I've driven through D.C., but I've never actually stopped to see anything there. So that's, yeah. It's, there's some phenomenal, uh, phenomenal museums at the Smithsonian. But yeah, so this book, uh, this is a book I encountered in fifth grade. We actually did read it for class. Like, it wasn't something that I read of my own accord technically, but like, as occasionally happens, 
with school with uh, books you have to read for school, I really liked it and like plowed through it much faster than I had to to uh, keep up with the requirements for the class. Um, I just really got into initially the like figuring out how to live in the museum element. Then once the sort of mystery part pops up, I just really wanted to know the answer. I think I I I would always been into mysteries um, before this book, but I think this book kind of introduced the notion of the idea that things in museums could still be mysterious and that there can be a lot of investigation and research that goes into something as simple as seemingly simple as knowing who made a particular work of art. I think prior to this, like all the mysteries I knew were things like uh, that, that either had gone missing and were never found or like crime mysteries. Right. And this kind of, I think introduced me to the notion that there was another kind of mystery and that research could be like intriguing as an investigative thing. And also this is probably the first time that I ever really encountered Michelangelo as an artist. Uh, <laughs> I knew that all the Ninja Turtles were named after, after artists, but like the only one of those artists that I really had any context for besides just knowing that, that they existed was, was Da Vinci. So I remember this being like the first time that I ever really encountered the actual Michelangelo in any sort of context. Uh, uh, I think I, I glossed over this, but um, the, the museum believes that this uh, statue angel is a, is a lost work of, of Michelangelo. So there's a lot of talk about Michelangelo. I'm I'm trying to think if if I read this as a kid, if I would have had any concept other than Ninja Turtles myself, but I don't think so. I was not a particularly cultured child, and I don't think I really encountered works by those those types of artists until probably later elementary school. They did yeah. a lot of focus on Van Gogh and Monet. Not Monet, Monet. I was not an art student. Um, they they did a lot of focus on you know the pretty the pretty arts. Yeah, and, and like not, more not not statues and things. More recent art, relatively yeah. speaking. I feel like you know Da Vinci's the obvious one that I I think pretty much everybody encounters first. Michelangelo is probably the second most recognized just because because of the Sistine Chapel ceiling but yeah, I think he's a I, distant second <laughs> I don't think I can even think right now of what Donatello did Donatello was a sculptor I believe but I cannot name any of his works so we did talk a lot of last time about like the sort of feeling of, of survival and roughing it in the wilderness and everything and how i was never like super uh that and, and i was never like oh man i wish we could be camping all the time or something like that but i did i did appreciate uh claudia's plans because i also don't like to empty waste paper baskets <laughs> and i also think it would be pretty cool to live in a museum i you know the to your point, like Claudia, uh, so Claudia is uh, really the, the main character here. This book is really about her kind of 
struggling to find herself at a formative age. She's 12. Um, and like a lot of this story kind of ends up being about her sort of feeling out her transition into not adulthood yet, certainly, but like from child to less of a child, I guess. Um, maybe not teenager yet, but tween. Uh, and it's not for any terrific reason. It's not like to escape a bad home or because a plane crashed into the Met with her in it. <laughs> uh, it's because she's tired of chores and having to sometimes watch her youngest brother um, and has decided that she's going to leave now and recruits uh, her her younger but not youngest brother, Jamie, because he's frugal and she wants his money. Yeah, I I didn't like Claudia as a human being. She's a little bit of a sociopath. I understood her a lot by the end. I still felt like I didn't like her all that much. Mm-hmm. But definitely in the beginning when she was going over her plan and talking about the injustice of having to clean the garbage... And that's why she's going to run away. But she doesn't like gross things or bugs. So she's going to run away somewhere posh. I just sort of set the book down and I was like, oh, gosh, (laughs) I'm going to hate this girl, aren't I? (laughs) She's she's very Connecticut. (laughs) I have friends I love from Connecticut, but I think they'll agree with me. I'm I'm glad to know that there's some uh, real like experience captured in this character. Speaking as a person who grew up in the South, I I don't have that point of reference as much. This is not I never knew anybody who would run away to the Met. I wish <laughs> I did. But I do recognize that a little bit, a little bit of her are some things that I didn't really like about myself all that much as a child. Because, and I don't know if this is the discussion question that you've got hidden from me, but. I did try to run away once as a child because it was when my youngest brother was a baby and I was irritated about it. I was maybe nine. I took my middle brother with me. Mm-hmm. We walked up the street for maybe 45 minutes and then we walked back. <laughs> I definitely did that kind of running away at least one time when I was a child. Where it, it, it sort of was a bluff, I think, mostly, uh, just to see like how how far my parents let me get before they caved. And I, and I think the answer was they, they did not cave, and I caved. It, it, I really want to know what the parents thought when they... So Claudia runs away and mails her family a, the, the letter explaining why she runs away. Talking about, you know, the injustice. I, it was very... I was very hung up on her word injustice because it just bothered me so much. But none of this is injustice, you little... Anyway. Um, I And they don't tell us really how the, the parents reacted other than that they were worried and they, you know, called the authorities and things. But I was very, very curious to know what they thought when they read that letter. Yeah. 
I'm also have... very curious what your parents thought when you tried to run away because that just that just is so funny. To me. <laughs> just imagining small Brandon just like stamping his feet. All right, I'm yeah. leaving now. Bye. And your parents are like, "Yeah, you're eight. You're with you're some gonna, stuff in a wagon. You're yeah. coming back in ten minutes." Yeah. Well, I have to imagine. Well, I have to imagine that in Claudia's parents' case, this couldn't have felt too much like a surprise, right? I have to imagine Claudia was a handful. <laughs> I imagine the bigger surprise is that, like, she went through with it and took Jamie, right? Um, yeah, it's it's hard. They don't really give us that because this whole book is is presented as being written by Mrs. Frank Weiler um, to her lawyer. So some of the parts that we don't get are things that either she didn't care to really research or or didn't care to repeat at the very least. And she didn't really seem to care all that much about how the Kincaids felt. She was much more interested in Claudia and Jamie and their adventure. Um, so that's that's the part we get. Yeah, the, the framing of the book was definitely really interesting because it starts off with the aforementioned Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler being really snarky to her lawyer. And I was sitting there like, why is she so snarky at this guy? Yeah, sure, like it's funny to be grumpy at lawyers. It's kind of a recurring trope, but why specifically? And then, you know, it kind of comes to, to light at the end why she's being so snarky with him about this particular topic which I thought was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the particular framing of the story did make me pause about a third of the way through, and I wrote myself a little prediction, mm-hmm. uh, which was wrong, but I want to fess up to it. Yeah, do it. My prediction was, based on the framing of the notes to her lawyer and the altering of her will, right, that's a little detail. The book starts with, hey, lawyer... I'm going to be snarky at you, but also change my will. Anyway, uh, so I wrote, I am guessing that they are going to thwart a robbery in this museum. Mm. Or they somehow prove that the statue is real. So well, now I'm thinking of Home Alone, but in a museum. Well, I, yeah, I just, I wasn't sure where it was going at that point, And I was like, there's got to be some reason why... They've caught the attention of this random lady. Yeah. So those those were my guesses. I was wrong. Yeah. Well, and and you know the the thing about it, the thing about this book is that uh, the the titular Mrs. Frankweiler doesn't actually show up in the story until the very very end, um, which is you know interesting uh, from a from a standpoint of of titles, right? Because it sort of feels like you're 75% through the book and you're like, I have heard of Mrs. Frankweiler. I've I've yet to see her or her mixed up files. Yeah. I I one of my notes that I have here is that I would definitely like to know more about Mrs. Frankweiler. Why is there not more? There are no sequels. Give me more details about this woman. She's fascinating. There's an itty bitty sequel. I know, I read it. It's in the back. It's like two pages. Yeah. Uh, well, she was based on a couple uh, people that Konigsberg knew. In fact, most of the characters in this book 
were based pretty directly on people in her life. Um, Claudia and Jamie were both pretty heavily two of her children um, who also posed for the art. Uh, but um, Mrs. Frankweiler was primarily based on the headmistress of a school that uh, Konigsberg had taught science in for a time prior to this. Um, and so that's where like a lot of her personality comes from. Um, the, this headmistress was apparently also a very sort of direct matter of fact individual. Well, she's just, you know, so by the end of the book, when they meet Mrs. Frankweiler, she's just this no nonsense, but also chaotic older lady. And and there are aforementioned mixed up files. She makes the kids go through this little test to find files in her, in this wall of file cabinets. <laughs> and Yeah. Yeah. She is an agent of chaos, like for sure. And we're never entirely told what her filing system is either. She she mentions that it makes sense to her uh, and it doesn't immediately make sense to Claudia or Jamie. They kind of imply that things are filed by location, but um, but like, like Alpha by like place in the world that they're relevant in or that things happened in rather than necessarily who they're about. More specific spoilers now, I guess, for, for this story, if you've gotten this far, uh, but, but still want to be able to read it for yourself. Um, the museum is showing off a new bronze that had been acquired on the cheap, um, and that some people suspect was a lost work of Michelangelo, uh, but there was not sufficient evidence to confirm that for sure. Um, and Claudia and Jamie's efforts to confirm that for sure uh, ultimately lead them to Mrs. Frank Waller because Mrs. Frank Waller is who sold the statue to the Met in the first place. Um, and so they do find that she has more information about the statue that she did not give to the Met. Um, and she continues to not want to give it to the Met. <laughs> Just, just because, like, like basically, she the the change in her will uh, that that you mentioned is specifically to leave the evidence of the statues uh, genuinely being made by Michelangelo to Claudia and Jamie, uh, and if they want to give it to the museum, sure, it'll be theirs, but she does not want to give it to the museum herself. Uh, or during her lifetime, because she just kind of likes to watch the world burn, I guess. Yeah, she says a couple of things like, I could have donated this object to that museum, but I didn't want to give them anything. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, you're so ridiculous. I like you. Yeah. But at the same time, like there is the the element of the statue that we're told in a couple cases is that the museum got it for a very good price, especially if it is a Michelangelo. And so it's not, it's not even just about, she doesn't like donating. She kind of makes a stand against donating in general, but also if she had included the evidence when she auctioned the thing, it would have gone for a lot more. So she also does not care about money per se. Yeah. Um, she just kind of 
doesn't want to give them the satisfaction of knowing. So, so it's important to note that this very beginning catalyst of this story, the children deciding to run away and them meeting Mrs. Frankweiler are the very, very, very beginnings and ends of this book. And there was a journey to get there of two children running around the Met at night, which, as you said, is horrifying, like touching things they're not supposed to. And not just touching them. Like, they yeah, slept so in a freaking bed. They they slept in a bed that was, I, I forget what it was, but... um. Oh, don't worry. I looked all of these things up. This historical bed. I, I had things to say about that. Things at a museum are so meticulous. And I really want to know, did they remake that bed perfectly every morning? Because they don't, they don't talk about whether or not they just say, "Okay, we got up and we got dressed, and we, we, you know, hid in the bathroom," which I also have comments about. But I feel like for for somebody to have been sleeping in a bed in the museum and the museum staff to not notice that, these children must have been amazing at making beds. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe among the other injustices they suffered was being forced to make their beds every morning. <laughs> When this book was written, it was free to get in the Met. So, like, being there during the day was not a big deal. Um, They could kind of come and go. Uh, There were enough school tours they were able to blend in. Um, And then at closing time, they would go to the bathrooms, um, stand on the toilets so that, you know, their feet couldn't be seen under the stall, and waited basically for everyone to be gone. Uh, and had kind of a sense of like the one security guard or whatever who patrolled at night where, where he was going to be. Um, and then they would go and sleep in this bed uh, before getting up in the morning, hiding in the bathrooms uh, in the time between when staff showed up and the museum actually opened and then repeating the whole process. The, uh, the bed in particular was uh, a state bed that was allegedly... Uh, the scene of the um, death, maybe murder, of Amy Robsart, the first wife of Lord Robert Dudley. Um, I looked at this up. So there's a lot of a lot of items in the museum are mentioned in this book, and with the exception of of Angel, uh, all of them are things that exist. Um, not all of them are still on display anymore, um, but they are all things that at least were at one point. Um, And this bed was, uh, like I said, uh, uh, an Elizabethan bed from the um, 16th century. We also learn offhand that uh, Mrs. Frankweiler apparently also sleeps in a 16th century bed of her own. Uh, (laughs) Why not? Um, And although I couldn't really find too much information about this specific bed, uh, the sort of backstory there is that uh, Amy Robsart is um, or was the the wife of the Duke of uh, Leicester, and that guy uh, Robert Dudley was purportedly Queen Elizabeth I's favorite. Um, basically, like there was a rumor that the Queen loved him, but you know couldn't couldn't marry him because he was already married. 
Um, but when he went to work for the queen, uh, Amy didn't go with him. She kind of hung out in the country. And then one day she turned up dead at the bottom of some stairs. Let's see. They they had sort of interesting habits. Every four days they went to the laundromat. Yep. And they ruined their clothes. Because, of course, they didn't know how to do their own laundry. Yeah, they had no idea. So, like, they shrunk sweaters and accidentally dyed their clothes gray because there was something black in the whole load it was i thought that was funny yeah i've i've encountered a lot of affluent children who just don't know how to do very basic things like laundry and that makes just a lot of sense yeah i'm gonna go even more basic things like how to hold a broom (laughs) you know so (laughs) i think the thing that horrified me the most was that when they when it was time to take a bath they took a bath in the wishing fountain. Yeah. What else were they going to take a bath in? Yeah. It's so gross. Well, and then they realized that... So a big a big part of this was that Claudia planned this based upon uh, having enough funds to support them. And that's why she recruited Jamie, because he saved all of his allowances and also cheated at war on the bus for money. Um, so he was a gambler who cheated and so he had money, $24 and some change. Hey, uh, it's the sixties. That was quite a bit of money. And it was much more than Claudia had. Um, so there was always this sort of like ongoing thing about their funds and Claudia wanting to do things that sometimes Jamie just kind of petulantly would be like, nope, we don't have the money for it because they didn't always get along. They definitely butted heads at times. Um, but they realized that they could just start taking the change out of the fountain when they took baths. Um, so they're to, stealing other people's so wishes. stealing other people's There's... wishes, yeah. That's correct. That's how that works. I... The fountain is apparently um, no longer there exactly. It sounds like it's been replaced by a different fountain. Yeah. Uh, one of the funny things was is that they don't steal anything else. They 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 make a big deal at one point about stealing a newspaper from somebody who had set it down because they were done with it, and then they have to like pray for forgiveness or something for stealing that. But they don't steal from the snack bar. I feel like if I was in this situation, I would have, you know, just gone to the snack bar at night and and taken food. <laughs> like <laughs> so, they yeah. they make this big deal about not stealing anything, except. Then they steal all these people's wishes. And I have a much bigger problem with them stealing the wishes of people rather than stealing some corporation's food at their snack bar. To be clear, I just... just, The notion that they're stealing wishes does not exist in the book. They're just stealing the coins. But I understand what you're getting at. Yeah, no, the notion that they're stealing wishes came from me. Yeah. (laughs) They're stealing all the coins that people put in this fountain to make wishes on. Yeah. Yeah, they have a very, a very like arbitrary code of conduct here. Obviously, since like they're not supposed to be in the museum, they're not supposed to sleep in this bed, uh, and and you know hide their stuff in sarcophagi yes. and things like that. But uh, but yeah, they don't they don't steal for the most part. Um, there were there were a couple of things as well about their schedule that baffled me. 
I, I think uh, I guess this kind of lines up with the the fact that I'm reading this for the first time as an adult. So some of the magic is a little lost on me. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, how are they waking up in time? They don't have alarm clocks. It's a good question. How are they avoid? How, how does the bathroom trick work when there's janitors and such that are going to come clean the toilets? They're going to get caught, but they don't. It, it gave me a lot of anxiety to read this book just because I'm sitting there thinking, oh, gosh, there's going to be cleaners. There's going to be this. They, you know, somebody's going to come in early one day before they've woken up because they don't have an alarm clock. So I read the whole book slightly stressed out, just yeah. waiting for them to get caught. Yeah. And they never do. Spoiler alert. Well, Jamie Jamie does come out of the stall a little early and, and run into a janitor. And the janitor is like, where did you come from? And Jamie says, my mother always said that I came from heaven and then takes a bow and leaves. That was amazing. Which, which was, yeah, the best. Um, they are only in the museum for like a week. It's not like they dodged uh, detection for months. They, they were there for a week. But there are a couple times that they, they do have to go find places and galleries to hide, um, waiting for people to pass. Like uh, there's, there's one of the nights where um, people come in to move Angel to a different part of the museum. And they hadn't planned on that. But in the, there is a bit of a close call there um, because there's more people in the museum after hours than they expected. Uh, and, and Jamie actually realizes this when he's in the men's bathroom because some, some men come into the men's bathroom and he hears them talking. But by then, Claudia's in the women's bathroom and they don't have any way to communicate to each other. So he's really worried that she will like leave as usual, not realizing there are people to avoid. But um, they, they kind of get lucky. And I think they hide for a little while behind the security desk or something like that or the information desk. There's, there's some talk of it. But yeah, they do, they do manage to stay undetected for, for an implausibly long time. I, I don't want my saying that I had all these nitpicks to make you think that I didn't enjoy it. I, oh, no. I, 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 I read the book in two sittings. Which could have easily been one, but the first night I was super sleep deprived and I fell asleep about a third of the way through. There were things that I thought about coming at this story from an adult, like that stressed me out. Oh yeah, I also, I also definitely thought about things uh, that I that I had never really thought about before because I've read this book a couple times, but it's been a long time since the last time I read this book. Um, so certainly some of my perspective on things is uh, is different now. It's um. I was I was pleased to come back to it and find that I still really enjoyed it. It's it's a very funny book, I think, um, which is reportedly partially because uh, when when Kongsberg was writing it, she would read sections to her children, um, and if they didn't laugh, she would change them. She would rewrite it. <laughs> uh, so like that was by design, and I, I really appreciate this book's sense of humor. A lot of it is just kind of very wry and and. It's not slapstick or anything. Uh, it, it's it's kind of stuff that I think probably when I read it previous times, some of it went over my head a bit, but but some of it is also just really um, uh, charming. Like I find the I find the fact that Claudia really wants to hug the statue and gets upset that other people hug the statue to be sort of weirdly charming. Yeah, they. She and Jamie get this little tiff because she's envious that the people that moved the statue got to 
got to hold the statue to move it. And Jamie's just like, you are getting in this whole statue thing a little deep, sis. Yeah. Yeah, she she says, uh, the men who moved it last night hugged it when they moved it. <laughs> There's all kinds of hugging. Um, I, you're, you're right in that it was funny. I, I didn't, I think the, the only part that really made me actually laugh out loud was the line about my mommy says it came from heaven. I just, I sort of stopped there and just had a little chuckle. I, uh, I liked that they hide with tour groups a few times during the day. Um, and, and one of them, they mentioned that they hear some of the other children say, uh, when, when visiting the Egyptian gallery, Sarah looks like Pharaoh, pass it on. And then Mrs. Frank Weiler says, Sarah really does look like Pharaoh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's what you research? Okay. This is Frank Weiler is uh, going to throw some shade on these incidental children. Um, I, uh, yeah, she, she gets real sassy. Uh, there was a certain point where she was getting snarky at him in the beginning about how his, the lawyer doesn't care about anything other than his family. And I was like, where did that come from? That's so mean. <laughs> but then at the end, it makes sense. <laughs> Why he's fretting about his family. Were there any moments when you were reading it that you stopped and you were like, oh, oh, yeah, when I was a kid, this part, you know, blah. Um. I think the main thing is that I don't think I ever really connected with Claudia very much. Um, <laughs> Sorry. But, and here, here's, here's why. So like the, the real thing about this book and what it's sort of getting at um, with Claudia in particular is really a struggle to find her identity um, there's a lot of talk about Claudia wanting to find a way to be different. Um, and that, and that clearly kind of like starts to come around to being, she, she wants to sort of figure out who she is. Right. Um, not, not that she necessarily is desperate to stand out, although that's part of it, but, um, that she's kind of at an age where, uh, she's tired of just being a child and to some degree child or ch child's children are all kind of the same right uh on some level and she's looking for sort of the way to come into her own and like what she is really about um and this journey to the museum and her desire to like learn a new thing every day and then her desperation to solve the mystery of angel um all kinds of of gives her that journey um and i think i just never really got that beyond a surface level i don't know if i would have got that if i read it as a child but at the end when she says i knew that i was going to go home eventually i just needed to go back different really i felt like i really understood that and i understood her a lot more as a character i didn't necessarily like her any better but yeah they don't have to be together <laughs> I well especially you know when the chauffeur is like yeah neither child thanked me 
I was like, ugh, they're so entitled. <laughs> but I, I I felt that wanting to go back different thing. I feel like every summer vacation I always had this grand idea that when I got back to school I would be different and cooler somehow because I, I was always really on the outcast level of my my fellow students and I, I think I always thought there would be some magical change that would happen where I'd come back and I would suddenly be interesting and I would have friends that part resonated with me uh, remembering what childhood was like yeah it, it's it's um yeah it's it's a theme that i think i i wasn't really equipped to uh understand because because it's not that it's like hidden it's stated pretty clearly several times um especially late in the book um that that's what claudia is looking for um but i think i probably always, always took it to be um you know sort of she she wants to she wants to be the hashtag not like other girls or whatever um which might also be true but is not the point jamie though he's just like we had fun wasn't that enough and i was always like jamie you're dumb (laughs) he balanced her out though nicely whether it was just because he was had you know sort of the apathy of being younger or maybe he really was sort of yeah. more emotionally intelligent than her J- in some jamie ways is, yeah jamie jamie isn't isn't dumb um i just disagree with him on that point but yeah <laughs> they they play off each other well jamie is just very miserly and uh kind of just wants to exist like he's not really looking for a purpose to life and he doesn't really understand why claudia wants to either um i forget how old jamie is He's nine or ten. I forget. Um, he's a couple years younger. Uh, but yeah, um, he save he saves his money, although it's a little unclear why. I guess for later. And um, he he bets he bets nickels on a game of war on the school bus every day, but he cheats. Uh, so yeah, Jamie is great, probably. At one point, they go to the library to look up stuff about Michelangelo. So they walk to the library, and they get there, and they find some books about uh, Renaissance art and things like that. And Claudia basically assigns Jamie to look at the books with, the, with like a lot of the pictures and stuff while she goes through some of the other ones. And so later, um, later on, they see a marking that, that could be indicative of of angel being done by michelangelo and jamie's like oh i've seen that and she's like what is it and jamie's like you didn't tell me to read what the pictures were of i remember what page it was on and and it's just like jamie come on buddy what did you think she wanted uh so i think it probably makes sense to um talk a little about the author yeah i would like to know more about her for sure i deliberately didn't uh read anything about her i even waffled on reading that final note in the book but i yeah her afterward by by that point i was too invested Mm -hmm. i i felt actually a little bit like how i talked about how hatchet ended so abruptly i felt like this ended so abruptly (laughs) like i 
maybe it's just that I'm older now and it takes me like a little bit longer to get into a book and by the time I'm into it and then it just ends if it's a kid's length book and I'm just like, no, I'm not done. I'm not <laughs> done here. I need more details. So uh, E.L. Konigsberg, uh, she was um, born in New York, lived for much of her earlier life in Pennsylvania and um, uh, went to Carnegie Mellon for, for chemistry um, married a guy who was there for psychology. She pursued uh, graduate level chemistry until she decided that lab science isn't fun. And I feel that. I also abandoned <laughs> science at the college level because I didn't like lab science. Um, and and that's that's when she uh, taught science in school for a little while, and when she met um, the headmistress, who was some of the basis for Mrs. Frankweiler. Um, but, uh, they had three children and while she was raising those children, she took, she got started to take, um, art lessons, uh, cause we haven't really talked about it, but, uh, she did do all of the illustrations in this book as well. Um, creative pursuits were not really a thing she had dealt much with until her, her adulthood. It wasn't like this thing, this passion she'd nurtured for a long time. So, um. When uh, when her youngest child got old enough that they were going to school, she started to write in the mornings when the children were all away at school. Um, and that's how we got to, to this book. And uh, she basically sold this book and her other first novel. Um, um, she sold those at the same time to uh, the editor she would end up working with pretty much for her whole career, as far as I could tell. And uh, both of them were actually Newbery Honors nominations. Uh, the, the Mixed Up Files won the medal, and uh, Jennifer Hecate, etc. got a <laughs> Newbery Honors uh, award, which um, I, I believe she's one of two people, I think I saw, that has won the medal and an honors in the same year. Um, she's also one of the only only six people to win the medal twice the second time in 1997 for The View from Saturday, which I haven't read. Have you read Jennifer Hecate? I have not, but I'm probably going to. This book's story came from a couple places. Um, one of them was when she was picnicking with her family and the children were complaining about sitting on the ground and the fact that there were bugs and, <laughs> and stuff. And... Uh, she sort of mused to herself that like they that their idea of running away would be to run away somewhere really like posh right um then uh at a later time uh, at one point when she was uh taking art lessons at the met um and would take her children there and they would just kind of have to hang out in the in the museum while she was taking lessons and they would like look around a bit um, there was one day when they saw in one of these sort of display rooms where they've set up like a whole room of like old furniture, uh, they saw a piece of popcorn on a couch that was like <laughs> well, well away from the where the velvet ropes were. And so there was kind of this moment of how did that get there all the way over there where like people are not meant to be. You're not supposed to go that far. Like, where would you even get popcorn? Um, and uh and yes, yeah, so that's kind of where the um, someone living in the museum after hours idea came from. Uh, that's great. I love that. I really like the parallels between our 
my first pick and your first pick, not just because of the subject matter, but also because of the authors. They both had a very similar life track where they had a career in the sciences and then said, "Ugh, no, I want to be a writer. After they'd already, you know, done all that education and training. <laughs> Generally, Konigsberg's books ha- are, are kind of known for um, not talking down to children and having plots with things like living in a museum and trying to figure out if a statuette was actually made by Michelangelo, which is not exactly like a plot that if you encountered it in the wild, you would say, that's a children's book. Um, but But there it is. Uh-huh. I definitely enjoyed that, though, because, you know, when I started the book, I was just sitting there like, what is the primary struggle going to be here? Them getting caught? And that's, you know, when my brain started formulating that. Maybe they thwart a robbery thing, because that seems like a typical kid's book thing, I guess. Probably, as you mentioned earlier, because of Home Alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely kind of a, a different sort of thing than most of the stuff I had read. And as as a weirdo who liked learning about stuff like that, um, it definitely sort of spoke to me in a way that uh, most books I was reading didn't. Um, so, so yeah, that's 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 the book. I think I think because of that element, I. I probably would have liked reading it as a kid, but I definitely know that I would have liked reading it as a kid better if I read it after Hatchet. Because, like I said, after Hatchet, I just started thinking about survival situations in every situation that I walked <laughs> into. I I would be in a building with my parents and I would imagine where I would hide out in that building if there was a nuclear apocalypse or something like that. So yeah. I could imagine little kid me reading this book and then thinking about what it would be like to hide out in a survival situation in a museum. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, uh, so I designed our discussion question for for an event just like this. So uh, discussion question. If you were to run away and live in a museum, which museum would you live in? Mm. Well, one would think, if they know me, that the natural answer would probably be the Museum of Natural History mm-hmm. in in New York. But if I were to run away, it would certainly not be to New York City. <laughs> That's the only problem with that museum that you have? Primarily. Mm -hmm. I get it. I, I I don't mind New York. New York is fascinating, has a lot of interesting things, but if I was running away in some sort of needing to hide survival situation, New York City is not where you want to be. Too many people, too, too closed in. It, 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 yeah. I whew. do you have an answer for this while I think? Yeah. I did think about it a lot. Um a part of me would like to say the Natural History Museum in in New York because um I like it, but I know that you would never come visit me in the place that I would hang out, which is the 
under sea room. So oh, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> so that that one that one gets bumped for that reason. Um, this might be a little bit of a cheat, but it would probably be somewhere at the Smithsonian. And I think I think I land on uh, the Air and Space Museum ultimately, which is always one of my favorites. Uh, partially because there's a lot of um, vehicles that you can kind of hide in uh, where, where, you know, there's like small chunks of, of plane recreated or whatever, partially because uh, the museum continues to have one of the shooting models of the USS Enterprise used in Star Trek, uh, the original series. Mm. Um, and I would just like to be able to see that every day. Um, it's big. And, uh, hmm. And I mean, ultimately, like all the museums at the Smithsonian are within walking distance of each other. So it's a little bit of a cheat because I could go and during the day and visit a different museum. Um, but like Claudia and Jamie left the museum. So so you don't have to you don't have to be in the museum all the time. Um, but uh, but yeah, I runner up is probably the um, Natural History Museum at the Smithsonian, which has a pretty solid uh, dinosaur collection. Uh, see, I'm just so torn. In my heart, the the true answer would involve me going back in time. Mm. Oh, well, okay. I do have to asterisk. I know I shouldn't feel okay about this necessarily, but I do love the British Museum. It sucks that it has all these things that really should be returned to their original owners, but I like it. Well, my go back in time answer is similar. I... If I could add going back in time to this, it'd be the Crystal Palace. Sure. Okay, so going back in time, you'd do the Crystal Palace, but if you didn't have a time machine. <sighs> I'm also willing to expand this to, like, aquariums. Um, no. I'm not sure if zoos count. Zoos are not sufficiently inside. An aquarium I don't think would be sufficient because for the most part, the space in the aquariums are not habitable by me. So <laughs> less less to hide it. I can't, you know, jump into a tank to hide behind some coral. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I can't, but that'd be uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, golly. I mean, I... Can, I... can I pick the Natural History Museum up and plop it somewhere else? No. I mean, there's other natural history museums, though. But and other, other comparable museums. But I haven't been to them. <laughs> well, I mean, you may just have to, I don't know, roll the dice and hope that the one you pick is good enough. Uh, I want to be a smartass and say the Mothman Museum, but that's <laughs> not, it's not a very big museum. You, you, you are on board for a very modest uh, experience there, huh? <laughs> I suppose the answer is the Natural History Museum, but I would, you know, like, stay away from the whale room. That room is terrifying. That's fine. I, I think uh, you know, I, I'd say second place might be the uh, Museum of Science in Boston. Yeah, that's a good, that's probably a good choice. It's a, it's a fun little museum. It's not massive, but it's got a lot to learn yeah a lot of info scattered around so we uh end these things with with giving our ratings in counts of 
Giant Peaches because we both like James and the Giant Peach. Um, one of the relatively few books we had in common that we both really liked uh, from this part of our lives. So um, I've waffled about this quite a bit. I, I, I'm afraid to like give anything too high a rating immediately. Cause then, like, I think what happens? The, the new but, person um, is supposed to give I'm, the rating because you, you gave the rating first last time. Okay. Yeah, so right. go ahead and, I, and hit me with a rating. I don't want you to be upset. But I'm I have a reason. Be upset. I'm giving this book 3.5 giant peaches because okay. I want more. I want more detail about sneaking around. I just yeah. want to know more about everything. And I am completely <laughs> affronted at how little information we have about Mrs. Frank Weiler. So it's not yeah. because it's bad. It's because there was not enough. But didn't, didn't you, didn't you learn anything about the value of there being a mystery of not having answers? No. <laughs> I'll bump it. I'll bump it to three point seven five giant peaches, though, because you got me there. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think I'm at four and a half. I don't want to start out and be like, "This is the best." Five, four and a half sounds like it might still be high in my brain. Four feels low, and I'm not ready for it. <laughs> uh, I just coming back to it. It was still very much the book that I remember loving. I. Um, now that I have developed from my formative stage, I, I still recognize a lot of, I think, why I am the way I am in this book. Um, and and I just, uh, like I said, I think some of the humor and stuff uh, hit me now in a way that I didn't I didn't get uh, when I was younger. So so it felt like also just a nice a nice thing to come back to and find that I could still kind of. A lot of the parts of the book that I really enjoyed definitely gave me this feeling of, okay, I can see some of like the sparks of Brandon's humor f forming here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially my humor in writing, I think, is, is not dissimilar from the humor in this book. Uh, so, yeah. I don't know if I can draw a straight line, but I can probably draw a line of some kind. Straight line is itself redundant because lines are by definition straight. If, it, if it's not a straight thing, it's not a line. <laughs> you know. don't bring math into this. Anyhow, that's uh, my goodness. Thanks for joining us for this episode of My Dog Ate My Book Report. What are we going to be reading next time, Ren? Oh, good golly. We're going to be reading The Mouse and the Motorcycle by Beverly Cleary. It's a super quick read, so if you want to join along, you should totally grab it. My Dog Ate My Book Report is hosted and produced by Ren and Brandon, that's us, and edited by the fabulous Derek Valen. The music used in this podcast was licensed by Epidemic Sound. Transcripts were generated by otter.ai. Our icon image was illustrated by Cindy Lau. Have a question or comment for the team? You can find us on our website, which links to all of our socials at dogatemybookreport.blueberry.net. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot net or by emailing at dogatemybookreport at gmail. Blueberry doesn't like vowels. But anyway, yeah, we would be super excited to know what books you loved growing up. Thanks for listening.